Greetings everyone, this is Bobby Vaughn Jr. with A Call to Actions. Today is December 19th, 2019, and my guest today is the one and only Dr. David Minuta. He is the former chief scientist of the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant. The Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant enriched uranium hexafluoride up to weapons-grade material during the Cold War and also dealt with many other chemicals. It dealt with uranium and come to find out there were and still are transuranics on site. But Dr. David Minuta, welcome. Yes, thank you. You're very welcome. It's awesome to have you here. Uh, could you give us a brief background on what you did as chief scientist of the Portsmouth Cassius Diffusion Plant and any significant findings that you had found? Well, basically the chief scientist is in a group of about uh, two dozen people that would know the technical ins and outs of the facility and we would be on call 24-7 to troubleshoot problems. And so that would put me in every building and there'd be an intimate and very deep knowledge of what each building was supposed to uh, be performing, so what they were doing, and then we were blessed to have a lot of high-quality people uh, doing the work that was necessary uh, to keep the facility operating. And so anyway, that kind of gives you an overview of what I'd be involved in. So just about every major project, uh, and then dealing with the government agencies uh, that we were required to comply with. Mm -hmm. So from the research that I have done, it appears that there's been a lack of an accountable management at the plant. Um, And I believe if there's just a lack of accountable management, then the workers are really being put into some very hazardous situations and harm's way. Did you witness any of this when you worked out there? Yes. What we have to do is make a distinction uh, between the time when production was going on, uh, which would be true till about June of 2001, and then what's going on uh, since production stopped. And when you refer to the management, when we were operating, the management had to be somewhat knowledgeable. In other words, people with backgrounds in engineering and science and radioactive materials. Uh, But in more recent times, uh, basically being a career government employee who was available to deploy at Portsmouth was oftentimes uh, the driving force, so technical knowledge was not necessary. And I, I say that not from what I would do if I was in charge, uh, but what DOE has allowed to go on. And I think it's really important to stress what DOE is allowed to go on. So go ahead, please. Yes. And they are allowed to purposely release gases 
or uh, uranium bearing material from the exhaust or the 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 jets um, is that true uh, I'm not aware of whether there's uh, precise limits on venting and jetting out and releases uh, because if we're going to talk at some point about the contamination that's gotten off site, what we have to look at is that some of that contamination uh, is not of what I would call Portsmouth origin, meaning that it had to be brought in, meaning that the material that it's commingled with uh, is now out of specification. And so rather than do something internally uh, to reduce the concentration of these potential contaminants, uh, there is some documentation uh, that contaminated material uh, was vented out after hours. And now whether this is with just a wink or whether uh, this was a deliberate act uh, to vent contaminated material and therefore keep the withdrawn product uh, within specification, that right now is an open question. That's a very good question. And yeah, this material, I believe, came from recycled reactor fuel uh, from various sites uh, all the way from the the inception of the plant back in 53 54ish came from all over the world uh, that's a very interesting point that you made about that uh, so when, when material gets off site uh, I'd say definitely definitely a large amount of the material that is vented is hydrogen fluoride um, and one thing I've learned from you is that fluorine is the most reactive element on the periodic table so what happens when you have hydrogen fluoride being vented from a uranium enrichment plant that contains out-of-spec material what happens when that's vented out into the atmosphere regarding the hydrogen fluoride? Well, the hydrogen fluoride is arguably the most toxic chemical uh, at the plant. And it's, uh, when you think about places like Denora, Pennsylvania, so D-O-N-O-R-A, is people were actually killed uh, in a community where there was excess hydrogen fluoride in the air, uh, people breathe it, and if the concentration is high enough, the breathing and other difficulties that uh, are created uh, can be sufficient to kill people. Mm. And so it's a thermodynamically stable compound, and I think in one of our last discussions, I had mentioned to you that uh, basically a hydrogen fluoride would act as an acid, uh, it's a very corrosive material, 
and it also acts literally like a bus, uh, so that it would be carrying passengers off-site because it's a gas. Uh, at least, it, again, HF is a, uh, a low-molecular weight gas. Uh, so it's something that has to be accounted for uh, in any type of environmental work associated with the Portsmouth plant. What does what does fluorine itself do to the human body? What is just fluorine capable of? Well, it reacts with the tissues and it reacts with the bones. Uh, in fact, it'll leach the calcium out of the bones. Uh, so one of the things we look for in people that have had some type of fluorine poisoning uh, is whether their bones have become brittle, and that makes them uh, more likely to fall. Uh, so that's one of the issues. Again, breathing issues would be a problem. Uh, and basically, it's a bad enough chemical that people need to be warned that it's present and then dress properly uh, to mitigate its hazardous and toxic properties. Mm. So the uh, let's switch gears here. Move on to uh, there's a building. I th I believe it's still there. They're probably going to wait a while to tactically demolish this building. But if it if it's not there, you can correct me. Um, the X705 building is kind of a notorious building. I believe that's where transuranics were first found. Do you remember that time and what uh, what had to change when transuranics were found in the X705? Well, that's the decontamination building. So ultimately everything has to be brought in there. And some of this may predate me, but the uh, point being that uh, the properties of some of the transuranics are significantly different from uranium, uh, so that the safeguards put in place for uranium are very likely were inadequate uh, to handle uh, the issues associated with the transuranics. Uh, now, of course, the lay worker oftentimes is put on a production timetable uh, that you've got to meet the following milestones or accomplishments. And even if that meant uh, additional exposure uh, to hazardous materials, in this case, uh, the transuranic, uh, that generally was not a factor uh, in the workers' evaluation. Uh, so health and safety for the longest time uh, took a backseat to production. And uh, a lot of UF6, uranium hexafluoride, was produced at the Portsmouth plant. And it's when you see these buildings in person, as I had the luxury to, uh, to go on the perimeter in DOE's van, you were with me on that. Um, I, you know, I had been told that these buildings were big, but when you see them in person, they're just uh, 
they're the biggest buildings, easily the biggest buildings that I've ever seen in my life. And I, I really doubt anything tops, or maybe a few things, but most people probably aren't going to see buildings that big in their lifetime. Uh, so much material is produced, uh, uranium-wise. And with this massive amount of uranium hexafluoride being enriched, or the uh, 235 isotope of uranium, the impurities in the transuranics, although according to DOE, would be considered minute amounts, but with this massive amount of product being enriched, these minute amounts per shipment add up to accumulate to a, a quite a massive amount of transuranics that workers, the community, and the environment are being exposed to. Uh, that's correct, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Little Beaver Creek has really been kind of on the spotlight here recently. I think it probably always has. Uh, I don't know because I, I'm not a worker there. I had never worked there. But Little Beaver right. Creek, their plutonium has been detected according to uh, DOE's own environmental data system in the sediment at little, the monitoring station at Little Beaver Creek. Also, there's a trichloroethylene plume right there. So I wonder where all of this material, these toxic chemicals, the uranium and the plutonium, where all of that is coming from. Do you have any clue like where on site that material would be coming from that where so it'd be detected at Little Beaver Creek? Well, the uh, the trichloroethylene is probably the easiest one to answer because it's not a radioactive substance, but it was used for years and years in cleaning and degreasing operations. And so basically the wastewater uh, would be containing the trichlor and anyway, that has accumulated in the soil, and so the plumes will have to do with how the trichloroethylene has migrated to the soil. Because one of the peculiarities with trichloroethylene is that it's denser than water. Because normally water is denser than oil, uh, and you see this if you use oil and vinegar salad dressing, because the oil will float on the water. But in the case of trichloroethylene, the water will float on the oil. And so in the situation at the plant, if the trichloroethylene actually migrates to the soil by gravity, and really the only way to stop it is when you begin to get rock layers. So the plume will grow on the basis of what the local geology Now, you had mentioned with the uranium, depending on the building that the contamination comes from, uh, will help us determine uh, the approximate assay or the approximate concentration of the uranium-235 isotope. And of course, the U-235F6 
uh, is actually the money isotope, and it's enriched uh, to customer specification uh, and then withdrawn uh, in the 326 bill. And now, in terms of the contaminants, uh, what we would need to do is identify what they are and then to determine uh, which of the decay theories they're a part of. So certain isotopes uh, would generally not be part of the uranium decay series. And so when one is trying to account for uh, the amount of uh, radiation uh, and contamination, uh, one does not always know uh, what that can be. And so the nature of the contamination uh, will then be a factor in both toxicity uh, and in the uh, radiology or radiochemistry of those substances and therefore what people are getting away with mm. or what people are being exposed to. Yeah. Well, going back to the X705, I've seen a picture from a document of a worker scrubbing parts in the decontamination area, also known as the X705E uh, area, I believe, just yes. with bare hands. That that's almost unbelievable. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me just due to how DOE works and how they don't properly train their management. Um, but it, it, it sickens me to see these photographs of people with families scrubbing transuranic contaminated parts with their bare hands because of a lack of oversight and lack of management being responsible taking care of their workers. It, it really was and still is all about profits with them. This is probably a trend at all nuclear plants and chemical plants on Earth. Well, well we, yeah, yeah that, a lot of that is true. But what you have to remember is profit is what keeps the lights on and what pays people salaries. Mm -hmm. the, the primary issue here is since the time of the Manhattan Project, we've had 75 years to learn how all of this stuff fits together uh, to handle it safely and to protect our workers. And in fact, starting in the 1980s, uh, the federal government had initiated right to know program, and the right to know should have encouraged the organizations that DOE has and, and its uh, contractors to actually tell the lay worker what the truth is with regard to the area that you're working in. And anyway, DOA historically has not done that. And the net result is not only do we have the original workers who started out in the 50s, but the middle-range workers, which include people like me, and now you even have younger workers who are just working at sites where the demolition, decommissioning, and decontamination are taking place where before that process is continued, uh, the buildings actually become 
uh, possibly more dangerous than they were when they were operating out of these buildings. So that's an important thing to bring out, uh, is that when you're stirring it up now, uh, you definitely want to be careful uh, because you don't want to get anyone contaminated or spread contamination uh, beyond what it should be at. So all of these are factored in in whether or not we're getting through to uh, the Department of Labor uh, on issues associated with workplace exposure. The current workers that are um, disassembling, in, in, in my own words, disassembling these buildings, and they plan on getting to the X326 soon. They may have already begun, but they're breaking down, cutting these pipes that had once had material in them, uranium, transuranics, uh, toxic substances. They're cutting the piping with torches. That concerns me highly. But also, they want to put a moat, in, in my own words again, a moat around the building. I believe they call it a water detention system, something like that. Uh, but I'm concerned that when they pool these various radioactive isotopes together in this moat around the X-326 that something bad could happen. What do you think could happen? Oh, and, and now you talk about 326. Uh, the potential is uh, for a criticality. And I haven't been out there for a while, uh, but the fact is, depending on how far in the south end of the building you're going in, uh, will determine how much of the uranium hexafluoride uh, has condensed out and basically what we call desublimation and convert from the gas uh, back to a solid. And that's actually part of what's in the pipes uh, is condensed UF6. Now, of course, when the facility was operating, uh, the temperature was maintained at 140 degrees or higher to make sure that the UF-6 remained a gas or a vapor. Uh, but in the guise of saving money, uh, a lot of the heating was no longer applied, so the building temperature uh, would vary with the external temperature. And so certainly uh, some of that information would be available publicly. And so, again, that's an important question. So go ahead, please. Yes. Uh, you said there's there would be a possibility of a criticality. What is a criticality? Well, a criticality would be an uncontrolled nuclear reaction. And in this case, it would be initiated by a slow neutron. And a slow neutron uh, would not only create a fission, so it would create uh, two fragments where if uranium is element 92, 
the two fragments would be of elements that, when added together, would be 92. Uh, but the issues with the criticality include the production of heat and prodigious amounts of energy, plus for every neutron in, uh, there would potentially be three neutrons out uh, that could uh, maintain this chemical reaction. And at the end of the process, uh, the heat in the chemical reaction occur faster than you can run. And so it's extremely important that any moderators, uh, which are generally hydrogen-containing compounds, uh, that can be used to slow neutrons down, uh, be away from the work area, because the risk is substantial uh, for a criticality that would have the potential to kill the workers in the area. So, and we do try to safeguard against that uh, by spacing the highly concentrated, highly enriched uranium, uh, usually 24 inches away from each other. Uh, there would also be uh, the distance from where you are, uh, lead shielding, uh, and also limiting the amount of time that people can potentially be exposed. Uh, so a criticality uh, is absolutely something that we want to avoid. I would say so. I really hope they change their practices. Um, so it sounds like a criticality would be somewhat like a small nuclear explosion. Uh, would would that be said correctly? It's I, I don't know if explosion is the right word, mm -hmm. but it would be a, it would be an uncontrolled nuclear reaction because an explosion also deals with the production of gases, rapid high uh, increase in pressures, mm -hmm. where the criticality may not have that, but it certainly would create shock waves and heat waves. Uh, and it would be very damaging uh, to the people in uh, the building uh, where this is all occurring. Yeah, that must be avoided. At, at all costs. Now, uh, there have been criticalities uh, at, say, Chernobyl and also at Fukushima, and there is a history in the U.S. of criticalities, and people have died in these criticalities. So one step under a criticality, uh, what it, what was the word for that? A, what was what was that? Uh, just these uncontrolled chemical reactions. Yeah, uh, one step under a criticality where it's not exactly a criticality. Say, uh, partial uh, yeah, criticality. Yeah. Well, you you really you either do or you don't. Now, to make the comparison, when you're generating energy at a nuclear power plant, you have control rods. Mm -hmm. And the control rods are, are able to act sometimes as neutron points uh, or neutron absorbers. So the idea is 
in a production setting, for every neutron that comes in, you want to get one neutron out. In a criticality, for every neutron in, there can be several, possibly two, possibly three, neutrons that come out, and they can initiate subsequent nuclear reactions. And so the problem is, uh, if you're getting two or three neutrons out per neutron that's in, uh, is very quickly, you've got a lot of the fission reactions taking place at the same time, and it may be difficult to control the amount of heat that's produced, and therefore the amount of energy. So you always want to be on the lookout uh, for, do I have uh, material present that can go critical, and what am I doing about the presence of neutrons? And so those are operational questions uh, that should be resolved in the workplace so that every worker uh, has some reasonable guarantee uh, that they're going to be safe and not going to be fired on the next shift. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I believe all workers should, before they start their their work at the plant, they should be given a, a list of isotopes and chemicals at every work site that they would be working at, but I highly doubt they're even told about uh, U-234 and how it's more radioactive than U-235 and that there's a massive amount of it, let alone the transuranics and the fission products and that Portsmouth has a long history of feeding in recycled material that was contaminated. Well, the fact is, the worker is your most important asset. Uh, because without a high-quality workforce, which for more than 40 years we had at Portsmouth, uh, we wouldn't have, and this is actually a very positive legacy, because when uh, the enriched product uh, produced at Portsmouth was sold, one of the customers for many years was the Navy uh, for the power supplies on the nuclear submarines. But in recent times, uh, the major companies that have nuclear power plants in the U.S. and around the world uh, is that when you know what the end goal is and your job is to make that product that's ultimately sold, is you should have enough detailed information provided to you so that in an off-normal situation, uh, you have enough background in what you're working on uh, so that you would be able to make a prudent decision. And so, in other words, you don't want to make things worse. Uh, now, w when I'm talking about the sale of the product, uh, Portsmouth was one of the very few government entities that, upon completion of its work, would often return money to the U.S. Treasury, uh, indicating that there was actually a net profit uh, based on the sale 
of the enriched uranium uh, versus the cost of running these gigantic facilities. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Um, switching gears again here, I, well, going back to the workers and kind of switching gears is, I, I, I bet the workers, current workers, and probably past workers, didn't know they were receiving Russian material, although there was a 20-year deal between the United States Enrichment Corporation, which is Portsmouth and Paducah, uh, between USEC and Russia, known as megatons to megawatts, or the HEU agreement, which is highly enriched uranium agreement, where that's correct, where Russia would supposedly break down their nuclear bombs and which was highly enriched uranium and mix it with depleted uranium so it would become low enriched uranium and ship that to USEC in Portsmouth where there it would be it would be used part of USEC Portsmouth's uh, system uh, there was an issue one of the first shipments that came in was out of specifications from Russia and even currently and USEC now known as Centris admits that the largest supplier of LEU to USEC is Russia and you might want to remember this listeners a, a company a government corporation in Russia known as Tenex T-E-N-E-X that's short for Texnabexport, is Russia's equivalent to USEC, you could say. Uh, this, this bothers me due to the high possibility that contaminated material, contaminated with transuranics, also known as impurities, was, was and is, has constantly been coming into USEC from Russia. And, you know, we could go into the history of, of all USEC and Russia's deals uh, going back to, I know, at least 1993, it's probably before. Um, though people talk about Uranium One, Uranium One, you know, U.S. and, and Russia colluding to uh, create a United States company that whose shares were mostly Russian. Uh, they don't know much about the megatons to megawatts or HEU agreement between U.S. and Russia, which I think really needs to come out even more. And I think... Uh, go on. Yeah, I, I agree. And actually, the breakpoint you're correct is around uh, 92, 93, uh, because the Energy Act of 1992 among other things, created USEC, uh, which is the United States Enrichment Corporation. And so that was actually a part of DOE, and the privatization was, in effect, the spinoff of USEC uh, to become a private company. And so actually that's what happened, 
government uh, to be the agent that would handle uh, basically the negotiation and the details associated with megatons to megawatts. And, and really, the uh, intentions were good uh, with the various uh, nuclear reduction treaties. Uh, the objective would be to have less highly enriched weapons-grade material uh, that could potentially, in the wrong hands, uh, set off a cataclysm much, much worse than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so, what? So, with USAID being the agent, uh, it was important that. All of the known stockpiles, uh, where there uh, would be weapons-grade material, uh, that they be in places that are well-known, uh, and that there's a limited organization, a number of organizations, and the required talented people, uh, so that basically what has been a wartime weapons-grade material would be strictly used for peacetime use, and in this case, uh, just uh, commercial power uh, generation. And so that's really what the emphasis was on uh, megatons to megawatts, and it became a gigantic money-making opportunity uh, for the people who wound up on the business end of USAC. And one name that I keep seeing is Daniel Poneman. Yes. He's definitely one of those people lining their pockets. Um, I, again, and I try not to speak to that unless I've actually got data to look at. Yeah. Uh, but he had been an official with DOE and then when USEC was spun off, I'm thinking at the present time, he's either president or CEO of USEC. Yes. And, and so anyway, so he's actually made the transition uh, from career government uh, to well-compensated private executive. Mm -hmm. One other issue with the, the megatons to megawatts is... There is a GAO report that deals with the transparency measures that were taken. Or actually, after reading it, seems like a, a massive lack of transparency as Russia, when United States inspectors that would go to Russia to see the breaking down of the bombs to make sure that they were actually breaking down their bombs instead of just using commercial material to be shipped over to the U.S. Russia would not allow the U.S. to actually see the process where they would actually use the bomb material. Uh, you, the U.S. even wanted to, even asked, they could shroud the material, or they, they could shroud it, you know, so we couldn't see it. But they still didn't go through with that, not even in MIAC. Uh, so the lack of transparency, like how do we know 
that the material that they were using, the HEU, was actually coming from broken down bombs. I mean, that was the 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 main goal, the main uh, objective of that deal was to l limit Russians, uh, Russia's nuclear arsenal. Uh, but how do we know? How do we know that it was actually bombs that they were breaking down? I don't think we know. Well, that's actually a wonderful question. And the best way to answer that is that Russia is part of uh, an international group that uh, it's through ASTM, the American Society for Testing and Materials, where one of the groups is C-26, so C is in Charlie in the number 26, uh, that was called the Nuclear Fuel Cycle. And it's through that committee, that uh, committee of the uh, ASTM, that representatives of all of the players in the nuclear industry are supposed to get together and typically we do this about every six months. And ASTM does something else, which is to generate what we call consensus standards, uh, which in this case would uh, define what the specifications are for a feed material uh, so that when the final product is withdrawn, uh, that you have some assurance uh, that the withdrawn material will be inspected. And then also uh, there'll be both chemical and radiological uh, specifications, uh, which ordinarily would involve do not exceed levels. And so ASTM, uh, with the requirement of these consensus standards, uh, means that there has to be complete cooperation between all the parts. So in other words, generator or supplier, an end user and customer, uh, so that you end up with what we call the, the, the similar thing to the good housekeeping seal of approval. Now, at Portsmouth, we routinely did this. And we would remark to a customer, that it doesn't say through, that is SWU, uh, for the separate of work unit, until the laboratory says that it says through. And that's when we would do all the testing and be absolutely certain that we were meeting uh, the specification uh, for both feed material and product uh, in accord with the agreed-upon ASTM standard. Now, when a lot of this was going on uh, with the newer Russian material in the megatons to megawatts, mm -hmm. uh, people like me uh, had rotated off that committee. So, uh, in, in other words, in terms of active participation, you know, and being uh, physically present when the votes were taken. And anyway, because that would be one of the very first things that I'd be asking about is you're accepting material from Russia 
is it meeting the ASTM specifications? Because if the answer is no, then that product should be rejected and not used as any feed material. Great, great point there. Yeah, I, I had never heard of the ASTM. Um, it would it would be very interesting to get a hold of somebody who uh, had tested the material. And I, I wonder if management said, go ahead and process it even when it didn't meet ASTM standards. So a lot of questions, but you answered some very, very good questions that I had and brought up some, some great points that people need to know. Uh, so with, with all of that said, we're going to wrap this up for today. Dr. David Minuta, thank you for your service. I am very happy to have you on here and I'll be very happy to talk with you again in the future as a lot of things are heating up at the plant now. Um, justice, it's looking like justice may be served out there finally and even across the US, but it's a, it's a process. But every single individual who comes out and speaks out, definitely whistleblowers like Dr. Dave Minuta really make a massive impact. And with the truth, we're more powerful than we think. And Dr. David Minuta, again, thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. All righty. This is Bobby Vaughn Jr. with the Call to Actions signing out. We'll talk soon, Minuta. Take care. You bet. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.